I am sitting in lovely Siesta Key, Florida. I'm coming from Bangkok in Thailand. Prague in the Czech Republic. Cairo in Egypt. Auckland, New Zealand. London, England. Welcome to Career View Mirror, the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry, looking back over their careers so far, sharing insights to help you with your own journey. I'm your host, Andy Follows. Hello listeners, Andy here. Thank you very much for listening. On the 1st of March 2023, Careerview Mirror turned two years old. During our second year of podcasting, we've had yet more wonderful rising stars and senior leaders from the world of automotive joining us to share their stories. Thanks to the generosity of all our guests, we're creating an incredible resource library of valuable content. Each guest brings their own unique experiences and every episode is peppered with original stories and golden nuggets of wisdom derived from their experiences and from which we can all learn. To celebrate our anniversary, we've put together a tiny collection of stories from just a few of our guests who've generously joined us during the last 12 months. I hope you'll enjoy it and be mindful that this represents less than 2% of the content we created during our second year alone. I'll introduce my guests briefly and provide the number of their episodes so that you can easily find them to help you listen in full to those that capture your interest. Please also check out our Instagram at careerviewmirror where you'll find details of every episode and a soundbite to whet your appetite and help you choose where to dive in next. That's enough preamble from me. Let's listen to some extracts from year two of Careerview Mirror. Here's Declan Gall explaining his first entrepreneurial venture as a schoolboy and what happened when he proudly shared his business model on national television in Ireland. Yes, school is great, really. People, obviously, some people have um, particularly, you know, challenging memories, etc. I I, I went to a very small primary school, as I said, in a very small little rural village. Um, So kind of everybody knew everybody. And and primary school was broadly speaking just full of fun and and, and entertainment. I was I was far from the uh, smartest kid in the room, but equally I, I I would say I was a solid middle. But probably one note, at least from primary school, was um, I, I've always been quite chopsy and, and enjoy to talk and be heard. So I was picked out of this school. There was a uh, television program called the School Around the Corner that was running in, uh, in, in the Republic of Ireland when I was growing up, which was a, a rehash of a 1950s radio programme where basically they, they interviewed kids and, and basically just got a kid's perspective on life. And it, it got quite significant viewing. It went out, I think, on a Sunday or something or other. And uh, I got nominated and the researchers came down from RTE, which is the equivalent of the BBC in, in Ireland. And because I was quite gobby and precocious they decided I would um, fit the bill so at 11 years old we went up to the, the the broadcasting house I think this was 1990 maybe 1989 ironically it's interesting to see that for many years uh, I, I, I took quite a degree of uh, ribbing because I was wearing white socks with black shoes and I now notice that my 14 year old son uh, is wearing white socks with black shoes. So obviously everything does come around. 
and I was interviewed by a, uh, a pretty famous TV presenter, a guy called Jerry Ryan, who's since passed. And uh, basically, he 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 talked to his kids all about different things. So this particular feature referenced my school, which was Roundwood National School, and I think there was about six or eight of us on it. And he asked us things like, "What are you interested in?" Uh, I was like, "Yeah, documentaries and stuff like that." But I suppose one thing that that, that kind of runs a red line through uh, everything we're probably going to discuss was uh, at, at the end of his dialogue with me and with all of the kids, he said, what, what would you like to be when you grow up? And, and many of the kids were like, you know, nurses or doctors or a pilot or whatever. And um, in a heartbeat, I said a millionaire. And um, unbeknownst, the camera then panned to my mum and dad. And my dad at the time was working for a uh, a very well-known chocolate manufacturer. And I had been, uh, what what should I say, acquiring the chocolates that dad sometimes would bring home that were broken in carriage and selling them to my schoolmates at a a tidy 100% markup. And as the camera panned to dad with his late 80s, early 90s large glasses, uh, every one of his clients at that point rang him on Monday and went, we won't be getting any uh, any more claims for uh, broken chocolates from you, Mr. Gall, anymore after your son is currently selling them for 100% profit in his school. Oh, you so, gave uh, the full details. <laughs> oh, yeah, I gave, I, gave them, I gave it full barrels. So uh, that's, I suppose, a kind of a family uh, joke. There, there, there is still a videotape somewhere. I, I don't mind watching myself, but that one I find... Um, yeah. I find a little hard to watch, given large book teeth and white socks. But uh... you're very early, very <laughs> earliest work. Very good. That was Declan revealing how innocent he was as a schoolboy in episode 56. Thank you, Declan. I had a wonderful conversation with Shona Langridge, which included many amazing stories, including this absolute gem about when she met Mikhail Gorbachev. Can I can I tell you a story of how I met Mr. Gorbachev in Switzerland? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So so while I was working for this company in um, in Stug, a friend a friend of mine was working for an organization that was all about neutralizing plutonium. So they had, they were going to do this big celebration of 50 kilos of plutonium that had been neutralized, which was obviously anti-nuclear and all the rest of it. So they'd invited, this was in 2002 or 2003, so they invited to Switzerland major people like, um, there was um, Princess Carolina of, of Monaco, there was Gorbachev, there was Desmond Tutu, there was all these major leaders. And the idea was that there was this big celebration in this big hall of, of Russian. It, it was a, a Russian theme. She worked for a, a Russian organization. And so the Russian Philharmonic was there. And we had it. It was beautiful. We had a big black tie thing. We had all this the music playing. But anyway, at this one point, just before the, the whole thing started, uh, they, they announced that we all have to go and sit down. And, and there were there KGB agents everywhere, you know, literally all da-da, you know, on their, on their little <laughs> on the little headphones, this, that, and the other. And so they were trying to usher us all in. And I was like, I said to my friend, oh, damn, I've, I've got to go to the loo. I've got to go to the loo. So, so really desperate. Uh, anyway, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to turn. And the KGB agents are huge, Andy. They're like, nope. 
no, you can't, you've got to go in. You've got to, you, it's, it, we've got, got to close the security. You've got to close the security. And I was like, no, but I really need to go to the toilet. This is actually desperate. And he said, no, no, no. Then suddenly, literally, I felt this tap on my shoulder and I turned around and there he was, Mr. Gorbachev. And he said, because you could see I was struggling with this KGB agent. And he said, madam, is there a problem? And I just looked at him, Andy, and I said, Mr. Gorbachev, I need to go to the toilet. I said, I, I just, I was in such shock. And he, so he spoke to the KGB agent and da, 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 and the KGB agent said, you come with me. And I just looked at him and I said, Mr. Gorbachev, thank you. I mean, what, what, you can't make that story up. It's like, seriously, this world leader is worried about me going to the toilet. Anyway, so I, I said, thank you. And he just smiled because I don't know if you've watched any of the the programs about him, but he he really was such a playful. Like he was so play. He laughed. He I I just couldn't believe I was the words I speak to this man are about going to the toilet. Anyway, the KGB man um, ushered me to the toilet. He said, "You have one minute." Oh my God, okay. So we, then he brought me back. He placed me in my seat, and that's the time I met Mr. Gorbachev. God rest his soul. <laughs> Oh dear, I am in tears here, Shana. I've, uh, <laughs> that is wonderful. That, I think that's possibly the best line. I think you'll be about my 80th, 80th episode, and I think the best line. At the moment, I cannot imagine one that Mr. Gorbachev, I need to go to the toilet. But he was so gentle, Andy. Andy, this man, this man to me as a legend absolutely a le- absolute legend the shame his anyway the shame his country doesn't feel the same way but uh, the guy was inspiring anyway the lot the funny thing was the event went off really really well and as i was walking out of the the auditorium the kgb agent was there with his little headphones and i said to him can I take the flowers? Because there were these big flowers. He said, can I take the flowers? He goes, oh, my God. I said, I said why don't you join us in the after-party party? <laughs> anyway, the KGB agent ended up in the after-party party with me and the flowers. <laughs> Shame Mr. Gorbachev didn't come with me, but never mind. That's still one of the all-time great lines from two years and many, many hours of conversations. Thank you, Shona, for joining me to create episode 80. John Ellis shared many of the paradigms that allow him to have operated effectively in his career, including these thoughts on change. Later in life, and it was at my time at Ford when I was trying to write up some rules, right? At, at, At Motorola, I had come across this idea of uh, the concept of the ability of writing yourself a user manual, right? So we have user manuals or, or product manuals for products. What about having a user manual for how people should engage with me? Like specifically if they work for me. And so I began diligently the idea of trying to write down things like, like if you, if you are working for me, what should you know? Like, how should you, how should you know me so that we work best together? And one of the things that I was able to distill my chutzpah comment into was, you know, never disrespectful, always irreverent. It was just, you know, the idea of tradition for tradition's sake, 
chafed me. It just really bugged me when someone says, well, that's how we do it. Or that's what it does. Like even back to Sandy, well, John, you should only have one page, right? It was just, I didn't, I had never distilled it, but it was always, it was a level of irreverence to this, this sort of tradition and being able to be respectful about it. Right. So never disrespectful, but always irreverent, always asking, challenging, pushing, um, yeah. So when I when I were when we were talking about it with you know in, in throughout the interview process of four, they're like, okay, so what do you think? I'm like, I, I'm telling you right now, this this is like you're you're committing to change, and I'm I'm there for it. But change is hard. Change is painful. Change is change management's pain management. That's the new phrase today. Uh, people are going to start complaining, and you guys have to be prepared that people are going to be complaining, right? So and these complaints will take many. Forms. I didn't realize what forms they take. Today I have much much more insight, but you know these complaints will be profound. There'll be complaints about anything and everything, just because again, change is hard. Always irreverent, never disrespectful. I love that. Thank you, John, for sharing your journey with me in episode ninety. Michael Good must surely win the prize for making the most effort to get to an interview. So, what did you decide to do then? Well, the choice was made for me. Essentially, um, BMW UK decided to make wholesale changes. Um, so they brought in a new management team and I was made redundant. Okay. So Was that a uh, surprise to you? It was. I mean, it was it was quite it was quite shocking um because it, originally I'd moved back there on a fixed term contract. So I'd moved back there on a on a two year fixed term contract. And then that was coming to an end. And in, I think it was in November or something, they said, okay, let's make the position permanent. So I said, okay, that's okay, let's do that. And in the January, I was made redundant. Okay, that would be a surprise. Then it, so you know, that was a bit of a shock. Yeah. You know? So, so uh, you make How can we life... make him feel more comfortable before we whip the rug out? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a bit like that, you know. And, and you, you, yeah, I, I don't want anybody feeling sorry for me or anything, but. You know, you, you make plans. You, you you go, okay, I've got a permanent job here. It's it's relatively well paid. Um, we bought a house. You know, we were we were living in a quintessential English village in Surrey near Guildford. The kids were in the local primary school. You know, the cricket on the village green. It had one pub. It was, you know, it was almost idyllic in terms of, of the home life. And you make plans and all the rest of it because you've got this permanent job. And then literally three months later, no, you haven't. You've got no job. Um, so it was a real tough period, absolutely really tough period. Has that, the moment you found out, was that sufficiently shocking that you remember it clearly, that like you vividly remember being told and going? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I remember when I got home that evening, I walked through the door. And one, I was home early, so that was a bit of a surprise for Emma. And she looked at me and she said, oh, my God, what's happened? So it was obviously on my body language, on my facial expression. I hadn't even said a word. And she was like, oh, my God, what's happened? And so, yeah, absolutely. It was, it, was a, it was a big shock. But, you know, again, you know, it was a fairly long time ago now. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not suffering from post-traumatic stress because of it. It's, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was what it was. And, you know, it's, you get on with it. Yeah. And we know that there's a happy ending. So that makes it yeah, easier absolutely. for me. Makes yeah. it easier for me to ask some of those questions. What did you do then? Um, well, as I say, it was it was a really tough period. You know, I tried to find other positions, um, similar kind of roles in the UK. 
um, didn't seem to be very much happening. Um, it wasn't, was it 2006? Didn't seem to be a particularly thriving economy at the time. And I think it was, uh, there just weren't that level of position. So it was, yeah, it was really tough. I went through two or three months of, well, at least three months of, you know, rejections and, and no responses and, 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 and interviews and, and no further forward and all the rest of it. So no, it was, it became again, really, really challenging. And as always, I take life in my own hands and, and take my family's life in my own hands. Uh, and I saw a job advertised in New Zealand for a general manager uh, of a Toyota dealership in Hawke's Bay in New Zealand. So nice. I thought, right, okay, right, we're off, darling. Let's go to New Zealand. Um, it didn't work out quite as smoothly as that. but uh, So I had a telephone interview with these, these guys, and they said it was for a general manager position. It wasn't an after-sales position. So, but obviously much smaller scale, obviously in, in keeping with the New Zealand market. So I looked at it and thought, well, this could be an opportunity to broaden into a more general manager rather than specific after sales role. So we had an interview, a telephone, and that was fine. And they said, yeah, we'd like you to come down to New Zealand. I said, yeah, lovely, no problem. And then about a week later, they sent me an email and said, we'd love to see you in New Zealand, but you'll have to pay your own way to get here. So it's like, right. Okay, how much do I want this job? Or this interview, um, even? <laughs> well, for this interview, yes, for this interview. So, so I, I thought, right, okay. Well, on the basis that I've got nothing in the pipeline, I've got nothing, you know, uh, job offers or or anything, and I had some money from the redundancy. So, right, I thought, right, go on then. I'll come down and I'll come down and be interviewed. So I flew to New Zealand. Landed and that was fine. Obviously, as you know, bloody long flight in, in cattle class. Got there uh, two days after I arrived. You know, I'd allowed a little bit of time for the jet lag and all the rest of it. Uh, and I got a fo- I got a phone call uh, and they said, "Sorry, uh, we've decided not to go ahead with the position." <laughs> so it's like, right, okay, <clears throat> this is um, getting more challenging <laughs> by the day. So uh, so I thought, right, okay, so. Looked up, I looked up a couple of uh, employment agencies, just literally Googled or whatever it was at the time, a couple of, and, and found there was a couple of employment agencies that specialised in placing people coming from the UK into New Zealand. So, uh, and one of them was an automotive specialist. So I contacted them and said, look, I'm here. Um, this is what's happened. It hasn't worked out. You know, what well, can you help me? So I went and saw them and had a chat with them and an interview with them. And then I ended up, having an interview with two BMW dealers in New Zealand. So uh, I ended up being offered the job as after-sales manager for uh, what was then Shelley Motors down in Wellington. So I did end up with a job after all. I, I can't. This is so wonderful for me. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure my listeners are enjoying it, but this is, for me, this is wonderful because you did Singapore and then New Zealand, which is my journey as well. Yes. So I, I know yeah. Shelley. Well, it wasn't Shelley Motors when I was yeah. there. It was Jeff Gray. But um, I know the dealership. So this is, yeah, I'm having to really work hard not to just dive into Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Can we share anecdotes? And do you know this person? Do you know that person? But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. we can do that offline. I love this idea that you've you've invested you've invested in the airfare, so might as well have a look for a job now that I'm here. Now that this yeah. one hasn't worked out, um, there's a there's a wonderful story in Graham Wheeler who became CEO of uh, VW Financial Services years 
before he actually went to Milton Keynes for an interview with Mercedes Benz and it was okay but he didn't really think he gelled with them so he walked across the road and just introduced himself at VW and yeah. ended up getting a job there and then becoming CEO some, ah, some years amazing. later amazing. so I, I like the parallel there wow so I love the autonomy I love the self-determination I love the fact that you you know, there were no boundaries as far as you were concerned. New Zealand is as far as you can go uh, if you're looking for a, a job. Yeah. And you you went, you paid for yourself to go. You invested in the airfare. You got there. Disappointment. But it's another one of those great examples of sometimes the thing we go for and don't get then opens the door for something yeah. which you hadn't actually, if you hadn't gone, it wouldn't yeah. have happened. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you had... It was a, a recruitment consultant in New Zealand who introduced you to two BMW dealers yeah. separately. Yeah. Oh, they were diff- parts of different. Yes, yeah. One, different one I can't remember the name of. Uh, I went to see one in Hamilton. Uh, I can't remember the name to be honest. Uh, Coombs Johnston. Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, well remembered. And then, then well, Richard again. Johnston. Just I'm gonna sorry. Yeah. Richard Johnston <laughs> is one of the most wonderful human beings uh, in the BMW world, or just full stop. So yeah, I mean, yeah. that's why I remember uh, him and his business. But yeah, carry on. so I, I ended up on a, on, a, on another flight uh, down to uh, to Wellington and, and and being interviewed for the after sales manager's job at uh, what was then um, Shelley Moses. So and then and literally before I again before I flew out you know of New Zealand they, they'd offered me the job and arguably so, that was an even better fit for you or let me not put words in your mouth I'm just thinking you had the BMW experience already it yeah I mean, but it took away it didn't give you that opportunity to do the general manager bit I suppose but. no I guess not but you know it, it was it was frankly one of the, that, that situation and as I said my attitude is is okay wherever you are you've just got to try and get on with it and make the best of what it is and see what opportunities arise, even if, it, as you say, it's not where you thought you were going to be, but here, here you are, get on with it and, and try and make the best of it and see what happens, because usually something does eventually, whether it happens immediately. It has happens, to, it has doesn't to eventually. it? Absolutely. Imagine flying halfway around the world for an interview, only to be told that they'd changed their mind. Michael's was episode 64, and it's full of transferable wisdom from his journey. Thank you so much, Michael. I loved hearing from Oksana Grishina about her experience as a child during the dissolution of the Soviet Union and her affinity for adventure stories. Thank you, Oksana, for all the unique insights you shared in episode 102. We've actually picked three short stories from Oksana's episode. Here's the first. And I guess you had no sense of missing books or toys or were you aware that you were missing these things or were they just not there so you don't have anything to for, miss? For books, for example, I had to go to a library, a local library. Again, it would be one hour walk to get there. I would I would go there every two weeks uh, with my school. Uh, I would pick up books that I liked and then bring them back in two weeks time there was the process kind of you I would say okay I would I will take five ten books with me and then bring as many as I can can bear myself right as a child you're not you're not gonna take tons of books so and I remember I think I've read all books about adventures there so at some right. point they say we don't have anything anymore about adventures <laughs> because I really like yeah, yeah I was going to ask you what you 
what you chose. So you yes. were drawn towards the adventure. Yes, stories. adventures, adventures of any type, children books. Uh, then I kind of moved to uh, the books for adults like Jules Verne uh, and, you know, the science fiction, adventures in the past, adventures in the future, historical um, novels. Yeah, again, reflecting it, uh, just like. I just wanted to leave some adventures, but there was a, such a stable, you know, environment where adventures kind of wouldn't happen. Yeah. That. Yeah. So it's in that sense, I think there was a, for the for the child, it was a happy time because you you felt secure, confident, and in, in the environment you were. Yeah. In. That sense of adventure and curiosity has stayed with Oksana, and I'm sure has contributed to her leading an international career. Let me take a moment to tell you about our sponsor. Could you use some additional experienced resources who can work alongside you and your team on a flexible basis to help you achieve your priorities? I started Aqualite in 2016 and since then we've worked internationally with established automotive OEMs, EV startups, fintechs and insurance companies to achieve their unique mobility goals. Aquilai team members are highly experienced senior leaders with complementary areas of expertise who've run businesses and divisions internationally in our industry. Because we've all had many years experience of operating in the industry ourselves, we don't just advise our clients on what to do. Instead, we tend to work alongside them delivering their specific projects. We're happy to develop strategy and we're equally happy to then get involved delivering the plan. Mobility businesses are all about people, processes and technology. We leverage our Aquilai Academy for people development and Aquilai Consulting for those wider business topics. To give you some examples of the sort of work we do through the Aquilai Academy, we work with CEOs and their first line to develop cohesive leadership teams. We create continuous learning environments for leadership development. We develop bespoke programs to improve the performance of specific teams and we provide one-to-one coaching for high-performing individuals. To give you some examples of the sort of work we do through Aquilai Consulting, we help create paperless digital end-to-end customer journeys for direct-to-consumer finance and subscription models. We conduct strategic reviews. For example, one client asked us, what's the best financial services structure for each market we operate in? We produce feasibility studies for new market entry. We advise on and support regulatory applications. We help design, implement and monitor regulatory compliance procedures. We run tenders and vendor selection projects. We conduct end-to-end operational reviews to improve effectiveness and efficiency. If you're looking for some help with people or business topics and you like the idea of having some additional very experienced resources who can work flexibly alongside you, please get in touch with me for a conversation. You can email me directly at andy at aquali.co.uk. Okay, let's get back to our episode. James Harper shared so openly about challenges that he's overcome that I had to ask him how it came to be that he could talk like that. I had a feeling you would be. I had a feeling you'd be an awesome guest and you would talk absolutely from the heart about what what happened and without any fear and be able to be that vulnerable. Why do you, I'm going to, I wouldn't normally do this, but I just feel compelled to sort of sidetrack and say, how come you're able to sit here and talk like this, James? Why, why people will say, oh, he made himself so vulnerable. And that's something we talk about in, in leadership sessions and things, but why are you able to do that? <laughs> Therapy. Say a bit more. Oh, geez, I found myself getting quite emotional about it. Um, 
when I knew things were an absolute mess, I lucked out meeting somebody at the time who basically said, I think you need to see somebody. They were a therapist themselves, but because they were a friend, he said, you know, you can't, I can't. He gave me some names and I called them up and proceeded to go to therapy. Probably the most courageous period of my life was going to therapy. I used to be shit scared every time I used to go to a session. I still remember probably the scariest thing I did was actually go and see my boss, who was the CEO of Maya, to say, I'm having troubles. I need to go and see a therapist, which means, and my therapist was a, a traditional Freudian. So this was three times a week, an hour each time. Um, I had to get there and get back. So it meant at least two hours every day, three times a week. I had to see a therapist. I had to go and see my CEO to do it. It was either that or not go to therapy. Um, somehow I went and saw my CEO and I said, look, I'm, I'm having struggling. I'm and it, <laughs> he said, oh, that's good. That's great. <laughs> so well done. Now, and, and this, was, this was slightly before everything went pear-shaped. If he'd said it when, when I was going pear-shaped, I could then say, yeah, fucking oath you need therapy. Bloody hell, get you. <laughs> but it was during therapy that everything went uh, kaput while I was in therapy. And it does remind me of the Jung statement when a guy came to see Jung and, and Jung said to him, um, how are things going? And he said, uh, pretty good. I mean, not, not too many issues this season. And he says, oh, that's too bad. And the next guy comes in and he says, how's it going? He says, my wife's left me. Um, I've just been kicked out of my job and I'm bankrupt. And he said, ah, very good. We have plenty to work with. <laughs> so I had plenty to work with. <laughs> and essentially, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is the weird stuff about us as human beings and how our brains work and things like that. I don't know if I actually set myself up through therapy unconsciously to fail, to get to a place where now I am extremely content. I don't know, but it's a nice way of thinking about it mm. because I was fairly destructive to a lot of people during that time. And it's the only way I can actually try and, and uh, say, okay, maybe the payback is I've become a much nicer person, but I had to go through shit to get there. And in, in the process of therapy, I also divorced. Yet I'm now with a, a woman I've been with now for 20 years, um, who's the love of my life. My kids, who I get on very well. I mean, life, life is really good now, and that was that was the, you know, I'm, there's there's plays written about it, there's stories written about it, there's all sorts of written about the sort of the, you know, the, the crisis that you have to go through to sort of ultimately come out and maybe find yourself and what you should be really doing and stuff. And that was my crisis. That's how I look at it. There was a turning point, and it didn't. It wasn't only a year or two. I would say it, it went on for ten years. And I don't mean the 10 years of it being awful. I mean, the last few years of therapy were really were better than that. But um, no, it was, it, was, it was tough. For some reason, I felt able to ask you that. There's a security. There's a, a peace, an inner peace. There's an awareness about you that obviously in a very short you know, in in we've had a you know some spent some very fun yes. hours together. Was enough for me to feel okay to ask you to go there and thank you for mm. for 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 sharing that. 
Thank goodness talking about mental health is becoming increasingly acceptable. And thank you, James, for sharing your incredible story with me for episode 58. I was fascinated by Simon Warsop's insights on what really happens when people retire. Back to Norwich Union. Had you changed having travelled? Had that changed you at all? I don't think so. Not in any not in any fundamental way, apart from this appreciation of work, right? Apart from this idea that I, th- I think it's very, very easy when you're when you go straight to work from from university to get on this sort of wheel, the hamster wheel, and get pedaling really fast, and then your sole concentration becomes on getting off the wheel, be that for week, you know, for, for getting home at night um, at the end of the day, or going off and doing something fun at the weekend or your holidays. And we'd had this realization that actually, if you take yourself off the wheel for long enough you start to miss it, right? You start to miss it, which was really fascinating. It is fascinating because, well, for, for, for one reason that we, I've got a lot of, well, it seems a lot of friends who are retiring at the moment in, ah. their, in their early 50s. And um, I'm wondering whether what you've just said, whether there comes a point where you feel you've been on the wheel enough and it's going to end, you know, last you forever, or whether the same applies. But anyway, we'll talk about well, well, that. Well, well let, let me tell you a story. We're, we're about the right time for this story, actually. So I, I came back to Norwich Union, and basically all the way whilst I was at Norwich Union up, to, up until 2004, I was working in life insurance and life insurance-related things. Um, so I, we came back in '99. So I went back into helping on the pensions and, and life insurance side. And then in 2004 early 2004, I was made the head of retirement products. So I was responsible for the marketing, the pricing, and the product development of the retirement products. So these are the annuities, the pensions you take when you turn your cash pot into a pension or income drawdown. And we did something very, very interesting at this point. We went out and did some market research. And the market research was done in quite an interactive way, where we basically interviewed people who were 10 to 15 years pre-retirement and said, tell us about retirement. And to a man and woman, they said, I want to retire as early as I can on as much money as I can. And we went, of course you do. Thank you very much. We then went to speak to people who'd been retired for 10 to 15 years and said to them, tell us about retirement. Now, their stories were quite different. They're quite varied. But they had some themes coming through. And the themes were, most people miss the social contact that work naturally provides you with. They missed this sort of contribution thing that work naturally gave you. And they had all this knowledge or experience or time that would otherwise be going to waste, except that they had their work replacement schemes. So all these people had some form of work replacement scheme. And a lot of it, for a lot of those people, it looked like work. There were people who were consulting in their industry. There were people who were working at B&Q. There were people who were working at the local charity shop. There were people who were the the nannies to their grandchildren. So there was a whole bunch of people who were just working. And was that a label that you put on it, work replacement scheme? No. Yeah, this is me talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Okay. so then other people would tell you about the learning things they were doing, you know, learning a language. A lot of people went back and did history degrees. Uh, they were very, very popular amongst the, this group. So people would talk about the learning things they were doing, or they would then talk about the bucket list thing they were doing. So I'm going to visit every capital in Europe. I'm going to visit every continent. Or So 
people all found these different things they were going to do with their life, which was really interesting. So we then went back to the people who we'd spoken to who were pre-retirement and said, tell us about retirement. And they all said, we told you, early as we can, much money as we can. And we said, well, when you, do, when you get there, what are you going to do? And they all said the same thing. I'm going to enjoy myself. So the trick is, right. so how, how are you going to enjoy yourself? And a lot of people will start talking about, I'm going to get my golf handicap down. Yeah, I'm going to read all those books I've been meaning to read. Yeah, I'm going to go fishing. Right? It, it turns out those things are brilliant things to do as a break from work. They're not great things to sustain you, you know, after your career in retirement. So I, I, this is fascinating. I think this, this is the sort of retired community tap, tapping into the same experience we'd had as we travelled, which is how do I continue to get purpose and value from life post-retirement? Look, I was absolutely with these 10 to 15 years before retirement people, right? So my answer would have been as much money as I can, as early as I can. I instantly changed it. I changed it to, I want the money behind me where I could retire if I want to. My wife and I, excuse the language, we call it the fuck it fund. So this is the fund that if somebody comes and says to you, I want you to do something, and you don't want to do it, you don't feel beholden to the office. You just say, fuck it, I'm not doing it, because I can tap into the fund if I have to. But the other thing that I realized is, you know, when I coach people, I encourage them to think about not what they're retiring from, but what they're retiring to. So that, that's the most, from that very long shaggy dog story, right? That was my big learning from this point in my life, which is be really conscious about not what you're retiring from, but what you're retiring to. Because often what you're doing right now is giving you a lot of value. Don't think about what you're retiring from. Think about what you're retiring to. Thank you, Simon, for this and other golden nuggets in episode 68. Another thing that's been special during our second year of Careerview Mirror has been that we've introduced Side Mirror episodes. This has allowed me to share some of my own story. And it's also allowed me to introduce you to guests from my network outside of automotive who have a passion for developing others or who have some other interesting perspective that I want to share with you. For example, in episode 100, Claire Edwards joined us and explained how she came across David Rock and the neuroscience of leadership and how that helped her understanding of how we learn. You mentioned when you were explaining how what BrainSmart does, obviously the company's called BrainSmart, Claire, so it gives us a bit of a clue in the title that it's, it's brain related. And you said uh, you're interested, you know, it's about neuro leadership. How, how on earth did you come into that and discover that and, and get so absorbed in it that you uh, now it's the focus of your business yeah and I actually yeah I did I rebranded my business to, to to include the brain in there so this goes back to 2012 2013 where I came across a company called neuro capability that were based in Brisbane and they were running diplomas in the neuroscience of leadership And the whole concept around the neuroscience of leadership was started by an Australian who went to Middlesex Poly um, and studied the neuroscience of leadership. So basically, in a nutshell, with the advances of brain imaging technology, we're now able to, to see so much in the brain, how people make decisions, where insight happens, social pain, all sorts of stuff. So this guy called David Rock got a bunch of social cognitive neuroscientists together and a bunch of business leaders together and said, okay, scientists, tell us what we need to know about the brain to be more effective leaders or to be able to thrive and change. 
And I was really curious about that. And I saw that this diploma became available. And as I started studying, it's funny, it took me right back to being in school, in fifth form, studying the brain in biology. And I remember just how fascinated I was with the brain. And so I started studying. It was, yeah, February 2013 was I started my diploma. And as soon as I learned something, I then embed it into one of my programs. And I started to see, as I mentioned earlier, and I started to see people became more curious and they'd ask me more and they'd, you could see these little light bulbs of understanding going on and saying, ah, so that's why I react the way that I do. So that's why I do what I do. So that's why I hate change. And so that then just became, it, it was a huge insight for me that that people want to know why they do what they do. Yes. Not, not, not just what they do, not just how they do it, but we were missing the why. And the neuroscience was giving people the why. And you think about it, you know, we, we come up with these amazing models and hypotheses and we ask people to accept them and take them on board and run with them. But when there's something that's evidence-based and we've got really thorough studies or experiments to back that up, then people are less dismissive or there's certainly the people that I've been working with. And curiosity, again, curiosity is a state of mind that is like that sticky note for memory. If we can get people into a state of curiosity, when if you're in, whether it's virtual or classroom-based, when you see people leaning in, when you see people popping their head to the side or what have you, and asking more questions and wanting to learn, that's when you're going to get traction. And so my business at the time was called ChangeWorks, ChangeWorks and People Development. I rebranded to BrainSmart. And I, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be courageously vulnerable here. I just assumed that everybody was enthusiastic as me about the brain. And it was just going to go, what do you know And then it was crickets. Right. <laughs> oh, hang on a minute here. Hang on a minute here. Um, okay, right. This is a bit of um a bit of communicating and educating and understanding that needs to happen. And so it's been a really interesting ride, Andy. There are some some organizations and often in the public sector, government organizations, where they sort of leapfrog from very traditional classroom-based training, you know, oh, here's a one-day time management course to doing something with me around managing energy and under Arabian rhythms and all sort of crazy stuff like that. Or there might be early adopters, quite often in IT, software, what have you, um, early adopter organizations are like, yeah, I want stuff with the brain. But not everybody was banging down on the door to, um, to do programs that involve neuroscience. Right, right. And yet, as you say, you thought it was that that's it. You'd found it. You, you're going to flick the switch and everyone would love it because it was rational and it was it was explaining why we do the things that we do. And it, and it was different. And as human beings, you know, we're, we're asking people, well, certainly in my case, I'm asking my prospective clients to, to take a bit of a risk with doing something that's slightly different. 
Mm. Um, and and that can be challenging again going back to if they're really busy or it's it's a safety thing as well it may be well my incumbent provider is delivering good results do I really want to take a risk on someone who is saying that we'll get these phenomenal outcomes and it's all about yeah we've got to put ourselves in our client's shoes it starts with empathy human-centered design starts with empathy Mm. we have to go and be with them and understand their pains and their challenges Curiosity is like a sticky note for the memory. Thank you, Claire, for sharing your wisdom with us in episode 100. During the first COVID lockdown, David Woolcott started his not-for-profit venture, Saddle Up, offering micro-coaching sessions for people who've been made redundant. Our Saddle Up was, it was the first lockdown, so about two years ago now. Is it two years ago? It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's more, 2020, yeah. That's it. It was the first lockdown yeah. and... I had put a post on LinkedIn. So I enjoy LinkedIn. I, I, I find it useful, but I also, I also really enjoy engaging with other, with other people who, who I work with. And um, I, I wrote, I just wrote, I think I'd had a couple of glasses of wine. And I went, right, here we go. I felt inspired. And I said, look, I've been made redundant in the past. And I do understand what it's like. And even if I can't, it's unlikely I can help you directly with a role but please reach out and I'm going to commit two hours a week in six sessions of 20 minutes. And if you want to set up a time, it's confidential. Of course, it's free. So I'm going to cost you, but let's talk about our shared experience. And, you know, I have found good roles after it or a good role after my negative experience. And um, I went to bed and I picked up and it was like 72,000 views been shared thousands of times this thing had gone crazy i've never had that you know i'm trying to i share passionately things we're doing at work and about the people and you know well that's a good that's had a that's hundred likes or 250 likes amazing this one had gone crazy and then i didn't have the capacity <laughs> so <laughs> no i hadn't thought that far well, ahead I but i, I was with you think how marvelous right. and then whoa hang on a minute that's a no lot way. of 20 minutes <laughs> i know it's like no way so then i quickly worked it out it's like great now that was in the may and i'll grab back to october now so i was like this is just not gonna work and then a guy called nick tutor who was a mate of mine from my uni days we went to different unis but through his now ex-girlfriend we became mates nick and i and Nick's a director, director at Barclays Bank. And he said, I'll do financial services. I thought, oh, that's amazing. Then other people reached out. And now there's 26 of us in all different sectors who are doing their sector-specific saddle up. So I kind of look after consumer durables. We've got many people from automotive, including a ex-human resource director of BMW who's doing automotive. And you go on to Saddle Up on LinkedIn and you go to Google Form and you pick your Saddler and then I set up the call and that's it. Brilliant. And we have, uh, we're now 2,200 calls or something. We've No, 2,200 contacts we've made, so kind of micro-coaching sessions for want of a better word. Some of them lead to immediate opportunities. It's just building a network of, oh, sorry. And the one thing that the saddler has to have is that 
they have to have been made redundant. Right, that's your price of entry. <laughs> your price of entry is you need some form of career derailment. But okay, but if, so it's not, if, it's you, not, if your name's not down, you're not coming in. It's if in. your name's down, you're not coming in. Yeah. <laughs> and we need, and preferably, we also need to know that you've made redundancies because that's redundancy isn't a nasty thing, right? It, it's a mech, it needs to happen for the survival of the company against the strategy. And to go back to my winning days, personally awful, but the board and the exec or whoever it was had to take a decision which is in their best interests. So just because you're not in control of that doesn't mean that redundancy is a, is a bad thing. And I hope I never have to do it. But in my role, I need to be prepared to make a difficult decision for the benefit of everybody else. And this isn't greed. Often it's survival of that company and we always play this through that you you know that is that is really important now put that to one side then we deal with how it's done and that's where there's a whole load of learning because the people i've spoken to sometimes the way in which they've been treated on the way out all the way through is not acceptable so that's the that's the fine line and again redundancy is you know i'll say it again it's it's required it's unfortunate sometimes it's down to bad management but sometimes it's down to covid right that, that a lot of industries couldn't possibly have coped with without a combination of furlough redundancy restructuring to get them through the other side mm. um so it's not a you know the conversations we make sure and we've got a process and we've got a document around how we want to approach this conversation and we don't provide mental health support because we're not qualified we don't provide financial support and we don't certainly provide legal support and we do not berate the com- the companies that have had to make a difficult decision that's just a fruitless activity right so, yeah so we make sure it's fairly fairly administered make, fairly treated yeah and, and, yeah and, and and future and future oriented so mm. saddle up is about you know the action of getting back on the saddle and how did you come up with the name i mean it's a great name uh, was that another glass of wine or was that probably <laughs> there was a lot of those that went on during lockdown so any, any number of thousands of wines i don't i really don't know but saddle up so, yeah I don't, I don't know but it was about i think it was just about you've got to you know we've all got to get back on our saddles when the time's right and with the right support and i think you you know you, you would you have to have processed what's happened you can't you can't suddenly yes. go, oh that's right let you know there's a, there is and we've got a thought this basic four stage process of understanding and digesting what's gone on to try to get to some form of closure so you can move on is is as important and that's where you can talk to family members and other people who've been made redundant and your friends and your network because sometimes it's you know well often it, it's a personal shock yeah so this was born from your own personal difficult experience uh, yeah. then by the time you were in the first lockdown and you had the inspiration to start saddle up you'd already navigated your way through it you'd processed it you'd had the success on the other side you'd yeah. got a nice role and so yeah. you were you were equipped at that point. You were in the right sort of place to be able to say, yeah. okay, look, I've been through this and I can help people. And yeah. uh, what a great idea. And it's grown very rapidly in two and a half years to over, mm. as you say, over 2,000 
network contacts and conversations yeah. taking place and now different people coming in and helping with their own specialism so yeah uh, yeah i really wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about that i remember the very first post i saw the post and oh really thought yeah 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 i saw it and i thought wow that is um yeah he's nailed it that's that's uh, really stupid no i thought that's a hell of a gesture and uh, I could see the the uh, engagement that it was getting. Yeah, it's good. And, and uh, it really, I mean, it really took the it really took the lift when Naga Manchetti from the from the BBC picked up on it. I don't know how. Um, uh, actually, I do. It was through a PR company who did some work for Saddle Up free of charge to get the message out there, and they got in touch with the BBC contact, and then I was interviewed on on the radio with one of the saddlers who we were helping who's now back in work. Good. So so that was, but just a little bit of PR and again, oh, off it went and we're all yeah. scrambling. So the, I mean, the vision oh. is to get is to get to nine, we're at 26, I'm wanting it to 9,000 saddlers. Okay. So a saddler, give us the definitions then. So, so a, a saddler is somebody who gives two hours a week or up to two hours a week in, in six sessions and... There are some saddlers who have only ever taken two or three calls. So it's not a huge impost. Uh, at, at the moment, the employment market is, of course, red hot. So, you know, it's great. We're pretty much out of we're out of work at Saddler. <laughs> so this, is, this is the only business model that when we have no work, it's a very good thing. Um, and we don't, we don't have a lot of work at the moment. Redundancy is sometimes required, and then it's about how it's done and doing it fairly. Thank you, David, for joining me to create episode 69. Oksana's parents didn't have to push her, but they did guide her to make good choices. How were your parents in this? Did they have strong expectations on you? Did they support you and let you make your own choices? How did that work? Yeah, yeah so it was my parents... You know, you can already feel that I'm kind of a strong, uh, strong-minded and <laughs> person. <laughs> I, I mean, at a yeah. certain age, they probably stopped kind of uh, giving me strong directions in my life. Yeah. I would say. I imagine they realised yeah. they didn't have to push you to. No, hard. no, they, no. They, there was no, none of that required. No, no, no. no, no. Yeah, to be fair, they always since I was little, as I said, at seven years, seven years old. When you know, when I decided I want to do something, I would would go and do it myself, right? Going to swimming pool myself, or you know, trying to learn how to knit. <laughs> because yeah, this is okay. at some point I wanted to learn how to knit. <laughs> okay, seven, seven is as good an age. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And at age twelve, there was a moment which I'm very grateful grateful to my mom for that because it was really, really kind of a really important moment. And I can explain, I'm going to give you, tell you a story about that. So age of 12, in our school, so just just say, just uh, revert back. In, in Soviet Union that time, or in Russia that time, we had sports school of Olymp- Olympic Reserve, right? So any sport would have a series and network of schools across the country where, you know, children were, were invited to learn some some type of sports. And then, Maybe few people would continue and then feed into the Olympic teams. And I was invited to join, I mean, for a testing session to join one of the schools and basketball school. And I said to my mom, okay, 
can I go there? And at least I'll have a look. I just look what they're doing there. I was really curious. And she said, okay, yes, you can go. And I loved that. I loved really the spirit, the, you know, all the other girls, they were very friendly. I saw how they play, how agile they were, how it's all kind of, it was really exciting. And when I came back and said, mom, can I, can I join the team? Because they offered me to join. Can I, can I join the team? But I would need to train myself three days a week. And well, she said, so how are you going to do with the, with the studies? Um, okay. Well, you can go only if you then continue with the same performance of level of, of studies, the same kind of performance you had at school, then it's your choice. And I think that was, that was really fundamental, almost like criteria or that she gave me, right? You can do whatever you want as long as your performance at school is good enough. Because I wanted so badly to do to play basketball, I had to learn how to focus myself in this very short period of time, a limited time that I had to do the homework, focus so so strongly to be able to do everything I needed to do so that I could perform at school, but then have time to have fun with my friends in the basketball team. And this is this is what you're what you're saying when you're in the flow. It's almost like you you dive into that topic that you need to do. You have sixty minutes completely. Every everything outside of you is switched off. You do that, finish, and then uh, and then you're free to have fun. Yes. So that's that that skill, I think, really really helped me for I'll- time management and uh, I guess to establish internal discipline. So at 12 years old, Oksana was learning that she could do what she wanted as long as she took responsibility for the consequences. And that helped her to learn to focus her efforts and in doing so to achieve in multiple areas. Ashley Harris shared the scrappy reality of Tesla in the early days in Europe. It was incredible. I remember my first day I flew out to Holland. Uh, you know, Tesla had a, had a factory in, in Tilburg in the Netherlands and my first day I flew out there and met uh, another colleague that was joining at the same time. And my first day, my manager gave me a laptop and said, there's 120 customers in your pipeline. Get going. I'm like, get, get going with what? And that's the point where the realization was, oh, this isn't actually logistics. Uh, this is this is something else. And so I opened this laptop and you know, there's a, a couple of guys uh, that were based in the Netherlands that had done this before because the, the left-hand drive testers were already in the market. So it was kind of a process already there. We just then had to adapt that for the right hand, uh, the right hand drive market and UK customers, and uh, it was amazing. It was this, you know, there were four of us in the team, you know, lots of sales employees already, but there was just us in this in this delivery uh, team, and you know, we worked together to try and work out what we're supposed to do and piece it all together. I knew nothing about electric cars. I wish I'd studied more in physics when you know talking about uh, electrics and uh, volts and amps and all these things and. One of my colleagues uh, did an idiot's guide to charging up on a big whiteboard, and I've still got the photo to the day of an idiot's guide. And then he kind of drew out everything in terms of single phase and, and dual phase charge, all these things I'd never heard of before. But it was it was incredible, and that's the point within my first couple of weeks that I thought this is going somewhere, and this I want to be here for a long time. And I remember we didn't know about Model Three at the time; that wasn't kind of in the kind of public domain. And, I just remember saying to, to my colleague and saying, I want to be here for a long time. This is going to be, this is going to be an awesome ride. And uh, I remember, you know, telling friends I joined Tesla and they said to me, 
what that sounds like a milk float so that, that's not that's not going to work and it wasn't until I you know managed to get a Tesla and take one home and take people back for a ride that they realized that it wasn't a milk float it was a serious car with some pretty incredible performance and technology to, to match and I, just this whole process of trying to help build the market up and help deliver the first vehicles was was incredible it was such a highly motivated and driven team across the whole of the UK business just to make make it a success and Remembering being there on the launch day and Canary Wharf and Elon Musk turns up and you kind of sat in awe thinking, wow, this guy's like on the news and I'm in the same building as him at the same time. And then he came up onto the stage where myself and four other colleagues were stood and he walks up on the stage, never spoke to me. I never spoke to him at all, but I was on the same stage as this really famous man. And yeah, it was just this whirlwind, this sort of magical fairy grand ride for a couple of years of just delivering cars to customers and seeing the dedication and devotion that both customers and employees would have to make it a success was just mind-blowing. Yeah. really was, uh, even still to this day, it's just thinking about some of the things that customers would do for us or that we would do for the business. It's just yeah, crazy. Yeah, I sometimes talk about that level of discretionary effort that people would right. give at Tesla was extraordinary. It opened my eyes to the impact that you can have when people are really, really engaged and they believe that the purpose of what they're doing is bigger than the business itself. Yeah. Um, would, have you got any comments on that, Ashley? That sort of you mentioned the level of motivation that there was, and you know some of the examples of of what people would do. And was that a first for you? Did that open your eyes too to what teams would do if they believed in something, they're working for something bigger than themselves or, or the organisation? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, you know, there's a couple of scenarios. You know, one, the workforce was still really small, and so we would all help out to do everything and anything that was needed. And so, if the store was short-staffed, then we, you know, work in the store for for a day or two, or vice versa, or marketing, or whatever needed to happen we would all chip in to make it happen. And I remember when we got our first sort of delivery location in the UK, which is still there to this day, the West Drayton uh, office. And when we first moved in, there's now, well, at least when I left, there's three buildings. There was just one building originally. And we moved in there. There was nothing. It was this empty shell. It was an old BMW dealership. And it nothing there. And we had one or two electric sockets to power everything. And so we've got extension leads on extension leads. So if health and safety ever arrived, it would uh, have been a nightmare. And there was no fridges, no nothing. And we just, everyone just kind of accepted that this is what it was. We'll make do with it. And, you know, I'm sat on the floor emailing customers. We had one mobile phone for the whole, there was no landline. So we had one mobile phone that all of us would use to contact customers and pass the phone around. I'll, well, I'll use it for the next 20 minutes to call my like next 20 customers and then I'll pass it to you. And most people wouldn't want to do that on a day-to-day business. It was scrappy. And I guess that's uh, the famous word at Tesla. It was scrappy. We just got stuck in and, and just accepted it. And, over time, then that just got built up and we improved the office and everything got kind of caught up with that. And then it was focused on end of quarter. And for people that haven't experienced an end of quarter tester, it's carnage. It's just deliver as many cars as you physically can before midnight on you know on the last day of the quarter. And so, you know, for the kind of two to three weeks leading up to that, there's periods of time where we'd be, I'd be picking up my colleagues at four o'clock in the morning, we'd get to the office at five, we then, you know, work from five right through to 11 o'clock at night. We'd have breakfast, lunch and dinner in the office and then do the same thing again for three weeks straight. Sacrifice a huge amount of personal time. And, you know, that looking back is a kind of 
not a negative, but I guess it is a negative of my my kind of five years at Tesla, but the amount of sort of personal time I sacrificed and, and lost with family and, and friends, I guess it's, it's the detriment of all of that. But at the time, not to say it wasn't in my mind, it meant to sound really sort of selfish and self-centered, but it, I had a very understanding wife who wanted me to work hard and, and do well in the job because she could see I enjoyed it and everybody was the same. Everybody just focused on making that as successful as possible without sort of real much attention or care and, uh, for, the, for the outside world, I guess. That was a glimpse of the level of discretionary effort that Ashley and his colleagues willingly put in at Tesla. Thank you, Ashley, for this and the many other insights you shared in episode 73. Ian Cooper realised the value of looking after existing customers. He was also incredibly forward thinking in the ways he made himself useful to potential new customers. But what I did realise was the more I could deliver for the customers that I was prospecting and bringing on board, actually the fewer of those calls I had to make because I was kept busy with the business that was coming through. And then I kind of realized that once I landed in one account, I'd just get in amongst it and get to know everybody and be, uh, tell you what, I'll come in tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. and I'll have three extra drivers in the back of my car. And if you'd need them, brilliant. But if you don't, I'll take them away again. I'll pay them a couple of hours for the trouble. And just very hands-on making it happen kind of attitude and also I worked out and nobody ever taught me this but I worked out somehow that the people paid to block the fellow that phone call are kind of their nine to five (laughs) I would cold call people sometimes physically sometimes on the phone Um, remember no emails in those days at all I've walked into builders yards at six in the morning knowing that they might have a trouble with getting enough drivers for the day you know, go and see a transport manager. Hi, transport manager. You're right, no problem. I'm in work around the corner, driving agency. I've got an HGV guy in the back of my car. If you can use him today, he's got his Brilliant. license on him. He's ready to go. <laughs> and and a lot of the time it worked. A lot, a lot of time. It Sometimes it didn't. And the worst you were going to get was was a you know a fed up driver who'd got up at five o'clock in the morning and didn't get a day's work. But I'd all go. I'd go and buy him breakfast and a cup of tea and give him a couple of hours money. But a lot of the time, within a week at least, they'd, they'd admire the front and they say, oh, I didn't, could, you couldn't use somebody that day, but next week my, my driver's off sick. Have you got somebody for the week? And then that It's would, not, yeah, it's, it. and it's not just front, Ian. It's the forward thing. Having the guy in the car, you know, do you happen to need an HGV yeah. driver? I've got one, got one in my bag. Ian's story is peppered with examples of this kind of highly practical ingenuity, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Ian, for joining me to create episode 104. Ollie Bridge explained the challenges of picking a career path that's also your passion when the lines get blurred between the two. How do you feel about medicine now? Is there, you said, you know, it was sort of foolish to, to go and do the sports thing. Is there a regret there that you didn't lean into medicine? A little bit, a little bit, yes. I still love, so I I say that, but I was lucky enough to get my course and then go traveling. And then to go traveling, uh, I needed to earn some money. And I worked as a fitness trainer, um, PT, to earn the money to go for my year off. And then I used that same uh, ability to do PT to earn money while I was traveling. And I did the same thing as I worked through uni to earn money. So I worked in the sports training village with a lot of the athletes there on top of the course that I was doing to pay my rent and and, and send um, food and drink money. But ultimately it opened a whole new world to me that I really, really loved. And I really did. This was fun one. 
um, I really did enjoy university and uh, I was lucky to, to come away with a first and uh, I graduated top of my year. And, and back then there were only 27 people on our course. It was very unique. I, I looked at Loughborough and there was 300 people on the course or somewhere around that. And then Bath, there was only 27 and you either had to get three A's to get in or you had to represent your country at your chosen sport. So it was a really good blend of top, top class elite athletes and people that wanted to work to make them better. Uh, And so it was a great, great environment and so on. The regret more comes from the career path afterwards, the medicine career is far more well trodden and it's very much more straight line with a lot of uh, different pivots if you want to. But I'd say that it's easier to pick your line and continue on that line. I was lucky enough to then go on and work with Benetton Formula One and Renault Formula One and the British Olympic gymnast team. And it's amazing. They say don't meet your idols, but they should also tell you, be careful what you hope to work in and don't work in your passion. I've always loved sport and I've always been very sporty myself. And when you're doing it as your job and you're still trying to keep that buzz in your own training and your own enjoyment of that thing, sometimes those lines get blurred. And sometimes if life's not going so well in work capacity, it can tinge the very thing that you do for your yin to your yang. Um, and training has always been more of a, a mental practice for me than it has necessarily from a physical practice. It's my meditation. It's my zone out. I don't think of anything else when I'm training other than that training session. And I really struggled with that when I was working in elite sport. And so that wouldn't have been the case in medicine. And when you then get a bit disillusioned with, well, this is what I thought my life was going to be. I thought this was me getting to where I wanted to get to. I was working for an F1 team with Jensen Budden and Mark Webber. And it was amazing to tell people and friends at the pub, but the lived experience was so deflating. And I, I, I put a lot of the blame on myself on that scenario because I didn't come into it with the right mindset and I didn't, I didn't apply myself the way that I should have done. But it was a really, really interesting pivot point in my career because what I thought it was going to be, it didn't turn out to be. And I had a really, really hard pivot where I, I realized the day-to-day wasn't satisfying. It wasn't mentally stimulating enough for me. And I didn't see longevity in it, but I'd just done that course. So what was I going to do? And so there was a real flapping of, okay, medicine would have just been, I do this and then I do this and then I go this and this is the next rung of the ladder. Sports science, I was very lucky to get where I got to quite quickly, but then I just did not see where that next rung of the ladder was. Plus, there was 4,000 other students and other people lining up behind me wanting my job, wanting to tell their mates down the pub that they were working in an F1 team. And so that was a really hard pivot. And, And again, Hindsight comes with time and I look back on that and I wish I'd handled myself differently and maybe things would have been different, but it was a real pivot point in my life to go, okay, so if I'm not doing this, no one else has kind of walked this path before me. So I need to, I need to find my own path. I'm struck by the powerful realisation he had of needing to find his own path in a career where unlike, for example, medicine, the next steps are not so clearly mapped out. 
And the importance of enjoying and being sufficiently stimulated by your day to day activities, not just the idea of being able to tell your mates down the pub that you work for a Formula One team. Thank you, Ollie, for the authentic way you share your story in episode 103. Oksana shared with us another lovely story from one interview she went to. Tell us a little bit about that. Any good stories yeah. that came out of that phase? Yes, the story how I got the job. Okay. <laughs> because um, well, I was I was still in in Belgium, and uh, after that meeting with the plant director, they they kind of organized the HR the HR team organized me a second interview for uh, to have an interview for the job in uh, light commercial vehicles. And I had to take an urgent flight because it was short notice and I was flying in business class. And when I was sitting in the business class, I had one person on my left hand side and one person on my right hand side. And the person on my right hand side, he got to the seat and he just fell asleep. And I, ha- I had a chat with the person on my left hand side. At the end of the flight, the flight attendants distributed chocolate. And I took a chocolate for the person who was sleeping and I put it in, in front of him. When he woke up and he, you know, said, thank you for, for the chocolate. I thought, no, no, no problem, of course. The day after I went to the office for the interview, <laughs> the person who was in front of me was that person who was sitting in the chair on the right hand side. He said, I remember your chocolate. <laughs> oh, so that, oh, wow. Oh, wow. That is wonderful karma. So yeah. you you did a good a good deed. You paid it forward, and then by complete chance, that was the interviewer. He was the interviewer. The, yeah. This was interviewer. Yes, of course, but definitely. I mean, of, of course, I was good, right? Not on the interview, but that said, for the good mood, I would say. <laughs> yeah, a great start, a great opening. When my guests are telling their stories, I often find myself creating a mental movie with them as the main protagonist. Moments like that seem well suited to a real movie screenplay. Eric Ebner von Eschenbach shared one of the most valuable inputs he'd ever had from a coach. I think one point in terms of leadership is that I learned with a coach how to deal with a global organization time-wise. And and she um, really asked me to reduce my fully booked schedule by 30%, which I found the most valuable input of a coach I ever had. So I had this exercise with my secretary, which nearly killed me, um, to say, okay, going forward, 30% of your calendar is empty uh, because you are much too much involved in um, operational daily activity. That's not your uh, job as a global head. Um, you have to delegate and you have to trust your direct reports and others much more because you have to have the flexibility to react. And that really, really helped me in the rest of my career. And whenever someone asks me what was a major learning, then it was this 30% empty calendar. I can imagine a lot of people listening to this. <laughs> And uh, if you could do it with 40 countries and 9,000 people to take care of, then uh, there's probably quite a few uh, other people who could, could do that too. Was it your decision to to work with the coach? Was that yes. your own choice? Well, I was asked um, at some point whether I want to like, uh, when, whether I want to do it. 
And I felt, okay, it's, I had three coaches in my professional career. The, the first one I didn't like because I thought I'm, I'm a good leader anyway. So this was this level of investment banking arrogance, which um, I still had at that time. And the second one was already quite helpful. And the lady, the third one was super helpful in many aspects. And I had, uh, and I, I think it was, it started um, after the financial crisis because the two years of the financial crisis really stressed me out. So I think today I was, I would, if I look back, I was very close to a burnout. Yeah, because I couldn't deal with, well, I had this feeling that I'm the only person understanding what what's happening on the on the liability side i couldn't talk to a cfo who had experience so i put this everything in my let's say in my personal responsibility and that started to eat me up yeah I, that makes sense because you weren't working in a in a bank in the yeah. sense that you were used to working in a bank where other people would have understood you yeah. were a, and you yeah. and you are totally alone yeah, yeah, as a group treasurer, if you go to an, a board member who is an engineer, he can tell you about the driving performance of a car, but not the performance of a bond market. Mm. And if you anyone to reflect on making decisions is a, is really hard. Eric's coach told him, "You're much too involved in daily activity. You need to have the flexibility." to react. I love when my guests share these valuable lessons that they learned so our listeners can use them to improve their own effectiveness. And I also love how my guests so often demonstrate vulnerability, talking about challenging times during their careers. Thank you, Eric, for doing just that with me in episode 84. You've been listening to episode 106 of Careerview Mirror with me, Andy Follows. This episode marks the end of our second year of podcasting. Thank you to all my guests who've shared their life and career stories with us so generously and with such humility and good humour. Thank you to you, our listeners, for spending your valuable time listening to our podcast. I hope that this episode will encourage you to go back and listen again to your favourites or to someone's story you haven't heard before. Going forward, we'll continue to bring you interviews with rising stars and senior leaders in the automotive and auto finance industries. We want to provide a platform to all voices in our industry based on merit, humility and humanity. If you know people who fit that bill and would like to share their story, please let us know. Thanks also to Hannah and Julia, who work so hard behind the scenes every week, making sure that these episodes get edited and published on time. If you enjoy Careerview Mirror, please could I ask you to do me a favour and share an episode with someone you lead, parent or mentor, or a friend who you think will also benefit. Thanks for listening. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hardworking you are, you're never going to be able to do it on your own. It's just not possible. You know, at the end of the day, you're steering your own destiny. So if it's not happening for you, and you're not seeing what you want out there, then go out there and connect. Don't rely on others. You you have to do it yourself. You have to take control. If you've got an idea, if you've got a thought about something that might be successful, if you've got a passion to do something yourself, but you just haven't quite got there, do it. Take a risk. Take a chance. Stick your neck out. What's the worst that can happen? You fall down. Okay, you pick yourself up and you try again.